As Jeffrey walked back to his car, his head was again hanging low. It was only a social game of touch, but it had got out of control. He'd been sent off again because of his outbursts, arguing with the ref, insulting the other team. He almost got into a fight with his own captain. And as Jeffrey walked back to the car, uh, he was starting to cool down and he began to ask himself, how did this happen again? And he was realising this kind of thing didn't only happen on the field, but too often at work and at home. And it happens again and again. What could he do to change? How do we change? It's a question we wrestle with as Christians. I've been reflecting on on it a fair bit this year. Over the last couple of years, there have been too many stories of conflict going bad in Christian circles. Churches and families on tenterhooks over politics and public health. That there are disagreements and conflict isn't surprising. In fact, it's not even, I don't even think it's disappointing. What's disappointing is when conflict isn't done well. Instead of dealing with one another in gospel-shaped, mature ways, too often people, Christian people, do exactly what we heard last week in Galatians 5.15. People bite and devour each other, and the result is a disaster, consuming one another. How do we change? How do we live out the kind of freedom Jesus gives in the gospel? Not freedom to do what you want any old time, but freedom to serve one another in love, to enjoy loving and being loved. Well, this is what we're going to find out today. How does God change his people? And you don't have to wait very long. We get the answer straight up in verse 16. Galatians 5.16, have a, have a look at it there in your Bible. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do, are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Uh, The first sentence makes things sound so simple. If you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the flesh. What's the flesh? It's not just talking about, you know, having meat and bones and stuff like that. No, it's a way of talking about our sinful nature. The desires of our flesh are our sinful desires, our self-centered, selfish desires. So the first sentence sounds simple. It sounds like if you trust in Jesus and are filled with his spirit, then sinful desires just go away. The problem is, that's not what happens. And I wonder if this is actually what's got uh, the foot in the door for the false teachers in Galatia, the law teachers. You can imagine the law teachers who'd gone to Galatia, you can imagine them, you can imagine their message being the exact opposite of verse 16. You can imagine them saying, if you walk by the law, you won't gratify sinful desires. And that's why they'd insisted on circumcision and law keeping. 
They were saying, this is how God changes you, by being under the authority of the law. The spirit hasn't worked. How about you try the law? But verse 17 shows things aren't that simple. It's not that once you receive the spirit, you never sin, but that there's a struggle. From the day you receive Christ until the day you see him face to face, there's a struggle. Within the believer, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. Sometimes, I'm sure you've been here, Christian, you might reflect on something you've done. You realise and regret something sinful, something of the flesh that you've done, and you wonder, does this reveal that actually I'm not a Christian after all? That I'm not really trusting in Jesus and I'm not really filled with his spirit. But verse 17 says it's the struggle itself, that you're even aware of your sin, that you run to Jesus for forgiveness. That's what shows the spirit's work in you. It's the struggle, not sinlessness, that shows the Spirit's work. And it's only by the Spirit we're able to not gratify the flesh, that there's a struggle, but there is progress, and actually being changed from the inside out. But what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Being led by the Spirit, verse 18, it's not about guidance. It's not about God telling you who to marry or what job to take. Being led by the Spirit is just a way of saying living God's way. But that gets us back to the question we've been wrestling with all through Galatians. Surely living God's way means living under the law. But verse 18 says believers aren't under the law. A couple of weeks ago, I was chatting with a bloke. It came up that he was a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, you may not know much about Adventists. I learnt lots in the conversation. But I did know they think uh, we should be under the law, and that's why they insist on special days like the seventh day of the week. It's why many Adventists are vegetarian. So they steer clear of any unclean food, food that's unclean according to the Old Testament law. You can't get in trouble for eating the wrong meat if you're not eating any meat. And this guy said, now, you Christians, you Protestants, you say you're not under the law, but it's still not okay to murder, is it? And doesn't that mean, therefore, you're under the Ten Commandments, under the law God gave to Israel? Sounds fair enough, doesn't it? I don't think many Christians think the same thing. Many people think the law points us to Christ who puts believers under the law. I should have probably put the arrows facing the other way around so that we are under the law. But anyway, the law points us to Christ, who then puts believers under the law. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? It's not what we've been reading in Galatians. Yes, the point of the law is to point people to Christ, and then he fills us with his spirit, and we walk by the spirit, not under the law. Followers of Jesus do not murder because that's walking by the flesh, not God's spirit. But the big question is not that theoretical question of how does the law fit in the Christian life, although we're going to keep hinting at that because Paul can't help but keep talking about it. But the real question we want to dig in today is how do we actually do this? How do we stop gratifying the flesh and instead walk by the spirit? Well, the first thing we need is to see the flesh for what it is. See the ugliness of sin. 
See how walking by the flesh separates us from love, separates us from other people, and even more eternally separates us from God. So this is verse 19, Galatians 5.19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, first up, we are thinking lots about the law of Moses and its place in the Christian life. That theoretical question does keep coming up. Do you notice what verse 19 does not say? It doesn't say, hey, the acts of the flesh are against the law. It doesn't say that, does it? I'm sure you could find something in the law of God that the law God gave to Israel that forbids everything on this list. But that's not how Paul argues. Because if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law given to Israel. He just says, look, the acts of the flesh are obvious. But obvious to who? On one level, they're obvious to everyone. Pretty much everything listed here has been considered a vice most of hum- by most of humanity through most of history, but not always. In fact, some of the things listed here as the acts of the flesh, as vices, have sometimes been celebrated as virtues. That doesn't surprise us, is what we read in Romans 1. At the end of a very similar list, it says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And you look at that list in Galatians and you think, well, there are a few things there that we all say are the wrong things to do, but we do them anyway. That's not what Romans 1 is talking about. That's not the, the problem. The problem isn't that we just do what we know what we shouldn't do. It's actually that we celebrate as virtues those things the Bible condemns as vices. So there is a little bit of an issue there with the who is it obvious to, but there is a general recognition, isn't there, that these things, these things listed in Galatians are destructive. But I think Paul's point is even more. For those who know God, for those who are walking by the Spirit, these things are very obviously walking by the Spirit. Uh, the list of the acts of the flesh is pretty long, isn't it? And it could, it could be much longer. And it finishes with, and the like. He goes, come and fill in the blanks. And there's plenty more blanks. You can fill it in. In this group, though, you can clump what he's written into, I think, four groups. Uh, four groups. Selfish, selfish sexuality, uh, selfish religion, selfish relationships, and selfish consumption. Uh, you notice the first three in the list are all about sex. Sexual immorality in the Bible is any sexual activity other than between one man and one woman in the bond of marriage. And some sexual expression within marriage is immoral. Sex is for marriage, isn't it? The Bible makes it very clear. It's an expression of the one flesh union of marriage. In the Bible, it's always other person centered. You see this really clearly in 1 Corinthians 7. Whether it's from the angle of pleasure or procreation, sexual expression is about love, other person-centred. Which is why sexual abuse and sex that is about getting and not giving comes from the sinful nature. It's selfish. 
as is what we do with our eyes and minds. Uh, Pornography and erotica are inherently selfish. Consuming someone else's body for my pleasure. Idolatry and witchcraft is self-serving religion. Idolatry is selfish. You invent a God who works for you, a God who can be controlled through rituals and sacrifices and often a God who is used to control other people. Witchcraft is selfish. It aims to manipulate spiritual and natural powers for your own benefit. Whether it's through crystals or manifesting, uh, manifesting is, sorry, manifesting is using the power of positive thinking, which isn't just having a, a positive attitude and giving things your best shot, that's just common sense. It's a spirituality that says if you claim certain things, if you think certain things, say certain mantras, you can force the universe to give you what you want. It's selfishness wrapped up as spirituality. And it comes from the flesh. The sinful, selfish nature. Selfish relationships, I think, they're a bit sneaky, aren't they? Because no one says that they're in favour of, that they are for hatred, selfish ambition, discord. But look at our families, our communities. Spend 30 seconds on Twitter or Facebook listen to our politicians and talk back radio. And all too often in our churches, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, but we fight and split over the stupidest things. We know these things are destructive. The question is, how do we change? And finally, selfish consumption. Drunkenness and orgies bring to mind particular excesses, losing all self-control with alcohol and sexual excesses, though the words in the original language paint a picture of excessive consumption. We've never bought something we don't really need. We need two cars and a ute and four TVs and, and... None of us have eaten just for the sake of eating... Upgrading just because there's a newer model? We wouldn't have a clue what that's about. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And when you see them listed in black and white like there, they're ugly, aren't they? They are definitely not serving one another in love. They destroy relationships, destroy other people, destroy ourselves, destroy the world that God has given us. And most significantly... Living this way leads to God's judgment, to hell. Now, don't get this wrong. This isn't salvation by works. It's not saying, look, if you do any of these things, then there's no forgiveness. In fact, it's the opposite. It's because of these things that Jesus took the curse for us. On the cross in his death, Jesus was separated for us. But the warning of verse 21 is serious. If you are continually doing these things, if you live like this, it raises the question of whether you're walking by the Spirit. It raises the question of whether you've been united to Christ. Jesus uses the example of trees and fruit. If there's bad fruit... 
it's fair enough to assume the roots are bad. If this is your way of life, if you're full of hatred and rage, if your consumption is selfish, if you're sexually immoral, you've got to ask the question, do I know Jesus? And you've got to hear Jesus' invitation to you as well to come to him and find forgiveness and freedom. Because Jesus died to take the curse we deserve for gratifying the flesh, for living in selfishness. And he rose to life and now by his spirit he justifies all who turn and trust in him. And by his spirit he changes us. He changes the tree from the roots up. So by his spirit we might produce good fruit. Which gets us to verse 22, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Just briefly, the whole thing about the law again. There's no law against the Spirit's fruit. If you're keeping in step with the Spirit, if you're showing these fruit, there's no law you're breaking. To use the language of Galatians 5.14, you're fulfilling the law. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Well, unlike the works of the flesh, you can't easily group these things together, though most of these fruit are expressed in how we relate to other people. Are you kind and gentle? Are you faithful? Can you be relied upon? Are you someone who brings peace in situations, not stirring up fights? Though peace may also refer, the fruit of the Spirit being peace, may refer to inner peace and peace with God. Self-control is one that's not really about being in relationship with other people. Yes, you need self-control when you're relating to others, especially when there's pressure to give in to the flesh. Though we also need self-control when we're alone. Self-control to say no to excessive consumption of media or social media, of purchases of alcohol or food. Self-control when it comes to our time. It's very easy to be wasteful and uncontrolled. Never making time for being with God, prayer and reading the Bible. Uh, that's a really quick skim over the fruit. I'm not going to dig deep into these, each, each of these. The big question for today is how do we do it? How do we walk by the, not walk by the flesh, but instead walk by the spirit? Verses 24 and verse, uh, verses 24 and 25 give us two steps. Two parts. Verse 24 says, crucify the flesh. Verse 25, walk by the Spirit. Uh, Crucify the flesh, the old word is mortification, putting sin to death. Though crucifixion, like putting to death, that's that's whatever it is, but crucifixion is a pretty vivid picture, isn't it? 
Uh, some of what I'm going to talk about in the next couple of minutes is uh, from this book, uh, The Enemy Within by Chris Lundgaard, I think is how you say his name, Lundgaard. It's highly recommended, The Enemy Within. How do we crucify the flesh? Well, crucifixion is shameful. And so we're to look at our sin and see the shame it brings on us, on the Lord Jesus, because if we claim to be his, well, our behaviour reflects on him. Crucifixion is for the guilty. And so we meditate on the guilt of our sin, the punishment we deserve, yet was laid on the Son of God on the cross. Crucifixion is painful. So we meditate on what Christ suffered for us, not only physically but spiritually, and also the pain our selfish desires cause others. So that's crucifying the flesh. And that's what Jeffrey from the start was beginning to feel as he left the game. He was allowing himself to feel the weight of sin, which is the first step to crucify it, but it's not enough. The negative side will not bring about change in the spirit. It's not only the negative, but we mustn't rush from that side. But it's the positive, isn't it? It's We need the positive to keep in step with the spirit. And what's this mean? Well, first up, we need to recognise that truly crucifying the flesh can only be done by the spirit. Without the spirit, anyone can feel regret about their actions that last a moment, but only someone who has the spirit of God living within them who's been given new life and a new heart by the Spirit. Only by the Spirit do we even want to crucify the flesh. And it's by the Spirit we have faith. Faith comes through the Spirit. And so we keep in step with the Spirit as we trust Jesus, trust in Jesus, looking to him for forgiveness when we sin, running to him for forgiveness when we sin. By faith, expecting Christ to give us help to turn away from sin and to grow the Spirit's fruit. By faith, knowing we have a new identity, crucified with Christ, no longer do we live, but Christ lives in us. And most of all, we need one another. The Christian life, changing and growing by the Spirit, is not a solo adventure. In fact, it is impossible to do by yourself. We need each other. We need the church. Now, this this goes against our culture of individualism, but there, there is no way. God makes no promise to grow you, to change you as a Christian apart from the household of faith, being a member of a church. And this is such a significant part of being how God changes us that the first half of chapter 6 is all about this. And that's where we're going to be going next week. We're going to see how God uses our brothers and sisters in the church to change us. That's next week. For now, let's pray. Uh, Pray for God to be working in us, changing us, that by his power we might crucify the flesh and keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that in the Lord Jesus, you pour out your Spirit who renews our hearts so we might walk by him. Help us to keep turning away from the deeds of the flesh. Help us see them as destructive and as divisive as they are. 
Help us put the deeds of the flesh to death, to crucify the flesh by seeing sin for what it is. May we see its guilt, shame and pain. Grow us that we might keep in step with the Spirit. Grow our faith in Jesus. Grow our love for him and our disgust of sin. Help us to know that Jesus loves us as we run to him for forgiveness and freedom. Strengthen us that we might be able to live for your glory, changed into the likeness of Jesus, showing fruit of the Spirit, which demonstrates how Jesus changes lives. In his name we pray. Amen.